Hey everyone, welcome to the Latent Space podcast. This is Alessio, partner and CTO and resident at Decibel Partners. Today we have no Swix um, because he's in he's in Singapore, so uh, it's a it's a one on one discussion with a uh, Tree Dao. Welcome. Hi everyone, I'm I'm Tree Dao. Excited to be here. Tree just completed his PhD at Stanford a month ago. You might not remember his name, but he's one of the main authors in the Flash Attention paper, which is one of the seminal work in uh, the Transformers era. He's got a lot of interest from efficient transformer training and inference, long range sequence model, a lot of interesting stuff. And now you're going to be an assistant professor in CS at Princeton next year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in the meantime, just to get, you know, a low pressure thing, you're a chief scientist at, at Together as well, which uh, is the company behind the Red Pajama. Yeah. Yeah. So I just uh, joined this week, actually, and it's been really exciting. So what's something that is not on the internet that people should know about you? Hmm, let's see. When I started college, I was going to be an economist. So hmm. I was uh, fully on board. I was going to major in economics. But the first week I was at, at Stanford undergrad, I took uh, a few math classes and I immediately decided that I was going to be a math major. And that kind of changed the course of my career. So now I'm doing kind of math, computer science, AI research. I had a similar thing. I started with, uh, with physics. And then I took like a programming course and I was like, I got to do computer uh-huh. science. <laughs> I don't want to do physics. So Flash Attention is definitely, everybody's using this. Everybody loves it. You just released Flash Attention 2 yeah, last right. week. Um, uh, yeah, early this week on Monday. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. You know, AI <laughs> things, time. Yeah, yeah, things move fast. Yeah, four days ago is one week ago <laughs> in AI. So maybe let's run through some of the Flash Attention highlights, mm-hmm. some of the innovation there. Yeah, And then sure. we can dive into Flash Attention 2. So the core improvement in flesh attention is that traditional attention is a quadratic mm-hmm. sequence length so it's yeah. and to the to the two flesh attention is linear which obviously helps with a uh, with scaling some of these models the two factors um, there so of course the goal has been to make attention go faster mm-hmm. or more memory efficient and ever since attention became popular in 2017 with the transformer paper lots and lots of folks have been working on this and a lot of approaches has been focusing on approximating attention. Mm-hmm. The goal is you want to scale to longer sequences. There are tons of applications where you want to do that. But scaling to longer sequences is, is difficult because attention mm-hmm. scales quadratically in sequence length on both runtime and memory, as, as you mentioned. So instead of trying to approximate attention, we, we were trying to figure out, you know, can we do the same computation and maybe be more memory efficient? So in the end, we ended up being the memory is linear in sequence length. Mm-hmm. In terms of computation, it's still quadratic, but we managed to make it much more hardware friendly. And as a result, we do get wall clock speed up on the order mm-hmm. of two to four X, um, which really helps because that, that just means that you're able to train with two to four X longer sequence length for the same cost without doing any approximations. Right. So as a result, lots of folks have been using this um, thing is available in a lot of um, libraries that train, um, that train, do um, language model training or fine tuning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, um Approximation thing is important because this is a exact thing versus yes. like a sparse. Um, yeah. So maybe explain a little bit the difference there. For sure, for sure. Yeah, attention essentially you compute pairwise similarity between every single element in a sequence mm-hmm. against each other. So there's been other approaches where uh, instead of doing all that kind of pairwise computation, you only compute similarity for you know some pairs of elements in the sequence. So you don't do kind of quadratic number of comparison. And this can be seen as, a, as some form of sparsity. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you're, you're ignoring some of the elements. When you write down the matrix, 
you essentially say, okay, I'm going to pretend they're zero. Yep. That has some benefits in terms of runtime and memory, but the trade-off is that it tends to do worse in terms of quality because mm-hmm. you're essentially approximating or ignoring some, some elements. And I personally have worked on, on this as well for uh, a few years. But when we talk to uh, practitioners who actually train models, especially at large scale, they say tend not to use these approximate attention methods because it turns out this, this was surprising to me at the time was that um, these approximation methods, even though they perform fewer computation, they tend to not be faster hmm. in walk-off time. So this is it was pretty surprising because back then I was, um, I think my background was more uh, on the theoretical side. So I uh-huh. was like, thinking of, oh, how many flops or floating point operations are you performing? And, and hopefully that correlates well with walk-off time. But I realized that I was missing a bunch of ideas from the system side where since flops or floating point operations don't necessarily correlate with runtime. There are other factors like memory reading and writing, mm-hmm. parallelism, and so on. So I learned a ton from just talking to systems people because they, they kind of figured this, this stuff out you know, a while ago. So that was really eye-opening. And then we ended up focusing a lot more on memory reading and writing mm-hmm. because that turn out to be the majority of the time when you're doing attention is uh, reading and writing memory. Yeah, the I.O. awareness yes. is probably right. like one of the biggest mm-hmm. innovation here. And the idea behind that is, like you mentioned, the the flops growth of the cars have been going up, but like the, the memory bandwidth, not as much. So uh, yes. I think like maybe that was one of the assumptions that the original attention paper had. Yeah. So talk a bit about how that came to be as an idea. You know, it's one of those things that like an insight is like, Obviously, why are we like rewriting the mm-hmm. like HBM every time? Yes, you know, yeah. and like once you once you change it, it's clear. But mm-hmm. what was that discovery process? Yeah, in hindsight, a lot of the ideas have already been there in the literature, and I would say is it was somehow at the intersection of both machine learning and systems, and you kind of needed ideas from both both mm-hmm. sides. So on one hand, on the system side, so lots of systems folks have have known that oh, you you know, kernel fusion is is great. Uh, kernel fusion just means that instead of performing, you know, loading the same element, instead of performing an operation, write it down, load it back up, and perform the second operation, you just load it once, perform two operations, and then write it down again. So that saves you mm-hmm. kind of uh, memory reads and write in the middle there. So kernel fusion has been a uh, classic. There's been other techniques from the system side, like um, tiling, where you perform things in, in, in uh, the perform computations in block again, so that you can load it into a really fast memory. Think of it as, as a cache. Um, and this is again classical computer science ideas, mm-hmm. right? You want to use the cache. So the system folks have been thinking about these ideas for a long time, and they they apply to uh, attention as well. But there were certain things in attention that made it difficult to do you know, complete kernel fusion. One of which is there is this softmax operation in the middle which requires you to essentially sum across the, the row of the attention mm-hmm. matrix. So it, it makes it difficult to kind of break it because there's this dependency. So it makes it difficult to break things into a block. So on the system side, it's been, people have been thinking about these ideas, but it's been difficult to kind of do kernel fusion for the entire mm-hmm. operation. On the machine learning side, people have been thinking more algorithmically. They say, okay, either we can change the, uh, we, we can approximate attention or there's this trick called the online softmax trick, which says that you can, because of softmax, um, the way it's written mathematically, you can actually break it up into smaller pieces, mm-hmm. do some rescaling, and still get the right answer. So this online softmax tr- trick has been around for a while. I think there was a 
paper from NVIDIA folks back in 2018 about this. And then there was a paper from um, Google. So um, Marcus Rapp and, 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 and Stats wrote a paper late 2021 um, on using this online softmax trick to break attention up into smaller pieces. So a lot of the ideas were already there, but turns out um, you kind of need to combine ideas from both sides. So you need to understand that, hey, we want to do kernel fusion to reduce memory retention, right? But we also need this online softmax trick to be able mm-hmm. to break the softmax into smaller pieces so that a lot of the system's tricks kind of carry through. You know, we, we saw that and, and it was kind of a natural idea that we we ended up using ideas from both sides and it ended up uh, working pretty well. Yeah. Are there any downsides to kernel fusion? If I think about databases and the reasons why we have um, atomic operations, you know, it's like you have observability and fallback in between them. How does that work with, with attention? Like, is there anything that we lose by, by fusing the operations? Yeah, I think mostly on the kind of on the practical side is that you lose a little bit of flexibility in the sense that, hey, now you have, for example, is uh, flash attention is just a subroutine that you would call to do attention. Um, but as a researcher, let's say you don't want that exact thing, right? You mm-hmm. don't want just attention. Let's say you want some modification to attention. You want to do, hey, I'm going to multiply the query and key, but then I'm going to do this extra thing before I you know, carry on. And so kernel fusion just means that, okay, in, in, we have a subroutine that does the entire thing, but if you want to ex- experiment with uh, with things, you you won't be able to use that fused kernel. And the answer is, can we have a compiler that then automatically does a lot of this uh, this kernel fusion? Lots of compiler folks are thinking about this, either with a, a new language or you can embed it in PyTorch. So the PyTorch folks have been working on this as well. So if you write just your code in PyTorch and they can capture the graph, can they generate? code that will mm. kind of fuse everything together. And that's still on, ongoing. And they, it works for some cases, but for attention because of this kind of softmax rewriting stuff, it's been a little bit more difficult. So maybe in a year or two, we'll, we'll have compilers that are able mm-hmm. to do a lot of these uh, optimizations for you. And you don't have to, for example, spend a couple of months writing CUDA to get <laughs> this stuff to work. Awesome. And just to make it clear for listeners, when we say we're not writing it to memory, we are storing it, but just in a faster memory. So yeah. instead of the HBM, we're putting it in the in the SRAM. Yeah, yeah. Maybe explain just a little bit the the difference there. Yeah, for sure. This is um, kind of a caricature of how you you think about accelerators or, or, or GPUs in particular. Is that they have a large pool of memory, usually called HBM, a high bandwidth memory. So this is what you think of as GPU memory. So mm-hmm. you know, if you're using a one hundred and you you list the GPU memory is like 40 gigs or 80 gigs. So that's, that's, the, that's the HBM. And then when you perform any operation, you need to move data from the HBM to the compute unit. So the, the actual hardware unit that does the, the computation. And next to the, these compute units, there are on-chip memory or, or SRAM, which are much, much smaller than HBM, but much faster. So the analogy there is if you're familiar with, say, CPU and RAM and so on. So you have a large pool of RAM and then you have the CPU performing the computation, but next to the CPU, you have you know, L1 cache and L2 mm-hmm. cache, which are much smaller than, than, than DRAM, and much, but much faster. So you can think of SRAM as like small and fast cache that uh, stays close to the compute unit, like physically is mm-hmm. closer. There is some kind of asymmetry here. So HBM is much larger 
And SRAM is much smaller, but much faster. One way of thinking about it is how can we design algorithms that take advantage of this uh, asymmetric memory hierarchy? Mm-hmm. And of course, like lots of folks have been thinking about this. But, um, these ideas are pretty old. So back, I think back in the 1980s, the primary concerns were uh, sorting. How can mm-hmm. we sort numbers as efficiently as possible? And the motivating example was banks were trying to sort their transactions and that needs to happen overnight so that the next day they can right. they can be ready. And so the same idea apply, which is that they have slow memory, which is was uh, which was uh, disk like hard disk, and they have fast memory, which was DRAM. Mm-hmm. And people had to design uh, sorting algorithms that kind of take advantage of this um, asymmetry. And it turns out, you know, these same ideas can apply today, which is different kinds of memory. Yeah. In your paper, you have kind of like the pyramid of memory. And just to give people a, an idea, when, when he says smaller, it's like HBM is like 40 gig and then SRAM is like 20 megabytes. Yeah. So yeah. it's not like a little smaller, it's mm-hmm. like much smaller. But the throughput on card is like 1.5 terabytes a second for HBM and like 19 terabytes a second for SRAM, which is a, a lot larger. Yeah. How do you think that evolves? So TSMC said they hit the scaling limits for SRAM. They just mm-hmm. cannot grow that that much more. Yeah. Um, HBM keeps growing. HBM3 is going to be 2x faster than mm-hmm. HBM2. I think yeah. the the latest NVIDIA thing as yeah. a HBM3 on yes. it. How do you think about the future of like flash attention? Like, do you think HBM is going to get faster enough when like maybe it's not as uh, as useful to use the SRAM or? That's right. I think it's, it comes down to physics when mm-hmm. you know when you design hardware. It's just um, literally, SRAM stays very close to compute units, and so you don't have that much area to essentially put the transistors. And you can't shrink these things too much. So just physics, like in terms of area, um, you don't have that much area for the SRAM. The HBM is off-chip, so there is um, some kind of bus that essentially mm-hmm. transfers data from HBM to, to the compute unit. So you have more area to essentially put these uh, memory units and so, yeah, I think in the future, SRAM probably won't get that much larger because you don't have that much area. HBM will get larger and, and, and faster. And so I think it becomes more important to design algorithms that take advantage of this memory asymmetry. It's the same thing in, in, in CPU where the cache is really small. The DRAM is growing larger and larger. DRAM could get to, I don't know, two terabytes, six mm-hmm. terabytes or something, um, whereas the cache stay at, like I don't know, 15 megabytes or something like that. I think maybe the algorithm design becomes more and more and more important. There's still ways to take advantage of, of this. I think so in the future, I think flash attention you know, right now is, is being used. I don't know if in the next couple of years, some, you know, some, some new architecture will come in and, and whatnot, but attention seems to be still important. Mm-hmm. For the next couple of years, I, I still expect some of these ideas to be useful, not necessarily you know, the exact code that, that's out there, but I think these these ideas have kind of stood the test of time. New ideas like IO awareness from back in the uh, 1980s, ideas like kernel fusions, tiling. These are classical ideas that have stood the, the test of time. And so I think in the future, these ideas will become more and more important as we uh, scale models to be larger, as we have more kinds of devices um, where performance and efficiency become much, much more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had a uh, Jonathan Frankel on the podcast and... If you go to isattentionallyouneed.com, he has an outstanding bet and he does believe that attention will be the the state of the art um, yeah. architecture still in a few years. Did you think flash attention would be this popular? Like, I'm always curious on the research side, you know, you publish a paper and obviously, you know, it's great work, but sometimes it just kind of falls flat in the industry. 
could you see everybody just like just starting to use this or was that a surprise to you? Certainly, I didn't anticipate the level of, of uh, popularity. Of course, we we're extremely happy to to have people using this stuff and giving us feedback and, and so on and, and help us improve um, things. I think when we were writing the the paper, I remember sending an email to 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 one of my advisors. I'm like, uh, "Hey, I'm excited about this paper, but I think the most important thing will be the artifact, which is the code." Mm-hmm. Um, so I I knew that like the code will be valuable. So we kind of focus a lot on on the code and make sure that you know the code is is usable and, and as fast as can be. Of course, the idea, the paper presents um, the the ideas and ex- explain it and have experiments that validates um, the idea. But I can knew that the artifact or, or the code was the um, was also pretty important, and that turned out to be the right focus. Which is you know we we put out the paper, we release the code, and continue working on the code. So it's a team effort with my my co-authors as well. Yeah. We mentioned Hazy Research a bunch of times on the mm-hmm. podcast before. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to spend five minutes just talking about how does the group work? You know, how for do sure. people get together? Like, how do you like bounce ideas off mm-hmm. of each other? Yeah, yeah. So Hazy Research is a, uh, is a research group at, at uh, Stanford led by one of my advisors, Chris Ray. I love the people there. It's one of the best experience I, I had. Like, they've, they've made my PhD so much more enjoyable. And I think uh, there are a couple of... Um, a couple of ways that the group has been working pretty well. So one is, I think there's a diverse pool of, of, of people who either, you know, some of them focus on algorithms and theory, some of them focus on building systems, some of them focus on applications. And as a result, there is this flow of idea. So as an example, some of us were working on like more algorithms and, and, and theory and then we can we can talk to the folks building system and say, hey, let's try it out and let's let's put it in the systems mm-hmm. and and see how it is. And there you will get feedback from systems folk. They will say, like, hey, we implemented this, or like we tried this, and you know, this is where it doesn't work, mm-hmm. something like that. And once we put it in the systems, like, the application folks can can use the algorithm or new methods or, or new models, and we again get great feedback from them because the application folks, for example, uh, you know, some of my good friends, they focus on medical imaging or seizure detection. And that is the problem they care about, right? And if your method doesn't work on the task they care about, they will tell you. Whereas I think a lot of um, people in machine learning, they're a little bit more flexible. So they will be like, hey, it doesn't work on seizure detection. Let's try some other task, Mm -hmm. right? But having that direct feedback of like, hey, it doesn't work there. Let's figure out why. I think that that feedback allows us to do better work. And I think, you know, that kind of process of exchanging ideas, validating it in a real system so that applications folks can try it out and, and give you feedback. I think that that cycle has been very, very useful. And so that's that's one, you know, having a diverse group of, of people. The other one is, um, and this is I, something I really appreciate from advice from Chris, was try to understand the fundamental, right? And and he's happy letting me go go off and read some textbook and, and playing with things because I think a lot of research uh, ideas come from Understanding the old literature and see how it fits with the with the new kind of landscape. And so, if you just new archive papers every day, you know that's that's great. But you also need to read textbooks, and and that's one advice I, I got from Chris, which is understand the fundamentals. And I think that allows to do you know, more impactful work. How do you think about um, academia versus industry? I feel like AI machine learning has been an area where up until three four years ago, most of like the cutting edge work was being done in academia, and now. There's all these big 
um, industry research labs. Um, you're obviously going to to Princeton, so you're a academia believer. Mm-hmm. Uh, how should people think about where to go? Say, I'm like a you know, I'm doing my master's. Uh, I have to decide between doing a PhD and like going into open AI anthropic. How should I decide? I think they kind of play complementary roles, in my opinion. Of course, like, I also uh, was uh, considering different paths as as well. So I think right now, scaling matters a lot, especially when you talk about language models and generative AI and, and so on. Scaling matters a lot. And that, that means that you need compute resources and you need kind of um, infrastructure and you need engineers, TAM. And, and so uh, industry tend to have an advantage when it comes to jet, you know, scaling things. But a lot of the ideas actually came from academia. So let's take attention which got popular with the Transformer in 2017, you know, attention actually was, has, has been around for a while. Um, so I think the first mention was in 2014, a paper from Banado and others and, and Yosha Benjo, which is coming from, from academia. You know, a lot of ideas d- did come from, from academia. And scaling things up, of course, has been, I think OpenAI has been in great at, at um, scaling things up. Like that's, that, that was the bet that they, they, they made, you know, after I think GPT-2. So they saw that scaling these things up to back then was 1.5 uh, billion parameter. It seemed to give you amazing capabilities. So they really committed to that. They really committed to scaling things. And that turned out to be, uh, it's been a pretty successful bet. I think for, for academia, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly what we're, we're doing in this shifting landscape. And so lots of folks have been focusing on, for example, evaluation. So I know the Stanford Center for Foundation Model, led by Percy, they have this benchmark called Helm, which is this holistic benchmark. So trying to figure out, okay, characterizing the, the, the landscape of different kinds of models, what people should evaluate, what people should measure, and things like that. So evaluation is, is one role. The other one is understanding. So this... Uh, has happened historically where there's been some development in, in the industry and, and academia can play a role in explaining, understanding, kind of, they have the luxury to slow down trying to understand stuff, right? So um, lots of paper on understanding what's really going on, probing these models and, and so on. I think I'm not as familiar with the NLP literature, but my impression is there's, there's a lot of that going on in the um, kind of NLP um, conferences, which is understanding what these models are doing, what capabilities they have and, and so on. And the third one I, I could see is that the academia can take more risky bets in the sense that um, we can work on stuff that quite different from, from industry. I think industry, uh, my, my impression is you have some objective. You're trying to say, hey, for this quarter, we want to scale the model in this particular way. Next quarter, we want the model to have these capabilities. You're trying to get objectives that maybe, I don't know, 70% that will, it will work mm-hmm. out and, you know, because it's important for, for the company's direction. I think for academia, the way things work is like, you know, you have many, many researchers or, or PhD students and they're kind of pursuing independent directions and they have a little bit more flexibility on, hey, I'm going to try out this you know, seemingly crazy idea and see, let's say there's a 30% chance of success or something. Right? And however you, you define success, for, for academia, a lot of the time success just means like, hey, we found something interesting. That could eventually go into industry through collaboration and, and, and so on. So I, I do see academia and, and industry kind of playing complementary roles. And as for, for someone choosing a, a career, I think just more, more generally, industry would be probably better in terms of compensation, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, probably work-life 
balance. But my biased perspective is that maybe academia gives you a little bit more freedom to think and understand things. So, you know, it it's probably comes down to personal choice. Um, I end up choosing to be a professor next year at, at, at Princeton. But of course, like I want to maintain relationship with industry folks. I think industry folks can provide very valuable feedback to what we're doing in academia so that we, we understand where the field is, is moving because uh, you know, some of the directions are very much the influenced by what, for example, OpenAI or Google is, is doing. Right? So we want to understand where the field is moving. What are some promising applications? And try to anticipate, okay, if the field is moving like this, these applications are going to be popular. What problems will be important in two, three years? Right. And then we try to start thinking about those problems so that hopefully in two, three years, like, we have some of the answers to some of these uh, problems in two, three years. So sometimes it, it works out, sometimes it doesn't, you know, but as long as we do interesting things in, in academia, you know, that's, that's the goal. Yeah. And you mentioned the eval side. So we did a benchmarks 101 episode. And one of the things we were seeing, it's like sometimes the benchmarks really influence the model development, you know, because obviously if you don't score well on the benchmarks, you're not going to get published mm-hmm. and you're yeah. not going to yeah. get funded. Um, how do you think about that? Like, how do you think that's going to change now that a lot of the applications of these models, again, is in more like narrow industry use cases? Like, do you think the goal of like the academia evals is to like to be very broad and then industry can do their own evals or what's the relationship there? Yeah, so I think evaluation is important and often a little bit underrated. So it's not you know as flashy as uh, oh we have uh, we have a new model that uh, you know can do such and such. But I think evaluation, you know, what you don't measure, like, you can't make progress on. Essentially, so I think industry folks like of, of course they have specific use cases that that their models need to do well on, and you know that's what they care about. Not just academia, but other groups as as well. People do understand what are some of the emerging use cases. So, for example, you know now one of the most popular use cases is is, um, is chatbot, right? And then I think folks from Berkeley, uh, some of them are from Berkeley, call MLSs. They set up this kind of chatbot arena to essentially benchmark different models. So people do understand what are some of the emerging use cases. People do contribute to like evaluation and measurement. And as a whole, I think people try to contribute to the field and move the field forward. Albeit that you know maybe slightly different directions, but we're making progress, and and definitely evaluation and, and measurement is one of the ways you, you you make progress. So I think going forward, there's still going to be just more models, more evaluation. We'll just have better understanding of what these these models are doing and and what capabilities they have. I like that your work has been focused on not making benchmarks better, but it's like let's just make everything faster. Like <laughs> let's so it's very horizontal. So flash attention to you just released that on on Monday. I read in the blog post that um, a lot of the work was like also related to like some of the NVIDIA library updates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe run a bit, run us through some of those changes and some of the innovations there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So flashes into something I've been work- working on for the past couple of months. So the story is the NVIDIA Cutlass team, they release a new version of their library, which contains all these primitives to allow you to do like, you know, matrix multiply or memory loading on, on GPU efficiently. So it's a great library, and I, I, I built on that. Um, so they, they released their version 3 back in January, and I, I got really excited, and I wanted to play with that library. Mm-hmm. So as an excuse, I was just like, okay, I'm going to refactor my code and, and use this library. So that was, that was kind of the start of the project. 
by the end, like I just ended up working with the code a whole lot more, and I realized that, hey, there are these uh, inefficiencies still mm-hmm. in flash attention. We could change this way or that way and make it, in the end, twice as fast. But of course, use, uh, building on the library that the NVIDIA folks released. So that was a kind of a really fun exercise. I would mm-hmm. say, you know, I started out, it's, like, it's just an excuse for myself to play with, with mm-hmm. the new library. What ended up was like a month, several months uh, of improvement, improving flash attention, discovering new ideas. And in the end, we, we managed to make it 2x faster. And now it's pretty close to probably the efficiency of things like matrix multiply, which probably is the most optimized subroutine mm-hmm. on the planet. So we're really happy about it. The NVIDIA Cutlass team has been very supportive. And hopefully in the future, we, we're going to collaborate more. Yeah. yeah. And since it's a NVIDIA library, can you only run this on like CUDA runtime? So like, could you use this and then run in like a AMD GPU? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's an NVIDIA library. So right now, kind of the code we release runs on NVIDIA GPUs, which is, uh, mm-hmm. which is what most people are using yep. to train models. Of course, they're emerging other hardware as well. So the AMD folks did implement a version of flash attention, I think, last year as well. And that's that's also available. I think there's some implementation on CPU as well. For example, there's this library GGML mm-hmm. where they implemented the same idea running on Mac and CPU. So I think that kind of broadly the idea would, would apply. The current implementation ended up using NVIDIA's library or primitives, but I, I expect these ideas to be broadly applicable to different hardware. As long as I think the main idea is you have like asymmetry in memory hierarchy, which tends to be everywhere in mm-hmm. you know in a lot of accelerators. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, Sarah Hooker's mm-hmm. post, like the hardware lottery. Yes, it's a uh, there could be all these things that are much better, like our architecture that are better, but they're not better on Nvidia. So we're never gonna know if they're actually improved. H- how does that play into like some of the research that yeah. you all do too? Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, Sarah Hooker. Um, the, she she wrote this this piece on hardware lottery, and that's I think she captured really well of what a lot of people have been thinking about this, and and I certainly think about hardware lottery quite a bit, given that you know I do I do some of the work that's kind of really low level at the level of hey we're optimizing for GPUs or NVIDIA GPUs and optimizing for attention itself, mm-hmm. and at the same time I also work on algorithms and, and methods and transformer alternatives, and we do see this effect in play not just hardware lottery but also kind of software framework lottery mm-hmm. you know attention has been popular for six years now and so many kind of uh, engineer hours has been spent on making it as easy and efficient as possible to run transformers right and there's libraries to do all kind of tensor parallel pipeline parallel mm-hmm. if you use transformer let's say someone else develop alternatives or let's just take Recurrent neurons like LSTM, mm-hmm. GRU. If we want to do that and run that efficiently on current hardware with current software framework, that's uh, quite a bit harder. Mm-hmm. So, in some sense, there is this feedback loop where somehow the uh, model architectures that take advantage of hardware become popular, and the hardware will also kind of evolve to optimize a little bit for yeah. that kind of architecture and software framework will also evolve to like, optimize for that particular architecture. And right now, Transformer is the, the dominant architecture. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure if there is a good way out of this. Of course, there's a lot of development things like, com- I think compilers will you know play a role because compilers allow you to maybe still 
be much more efficient across different kinds of hardware because essentially you, you write the same code and the compiler will be able to, to make it run efficiently different kinds of hardware. So for example, there's this um, language Mojo. Mm-hmm. They're compiler experts, right? And, and their bet is AI models will, run, will be running on different kinds of devices. So let's make sure that um, we have really good compilers with a, a good language that then um, the compiler can do a good job optimizing for all kinds of, of devices. So like, that's maybe one way that you can get out of this, this cycle. But yeah, I, I, I'm not sure of a, a good way. You know, in my own research, like, I have to think about both the yeah. kind of new algorithm, new model, and how it maps to hardware. So they're, you know, they're crazy ideas that seem really good, but will be really, really difficult to run efficiently. And so as a result, for example, we can't really scale some of the architectures up simply because they, they're not hardware friendly. Mm-hmm. I have to think about both sides when you know, I'm working on, 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 on new models. Yeah. Have you spent any time looking at some of the... Um new kind of like AI chips company, so to speak, like the Cerebras of the world, like one of their innovations, like, you know, collocating everything on the chip. So you mm-hmm. kind of remove some of this, like a uh, memory bandwidth issue. Yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's just an interesting bet. I think Tesla also has this uh, dojo mm-hmm. supercomputer where they try to have as essentially as fast um, on-chip memory as, as possible and re- re- removing some of these data transfer back and forth. I think that's a promising direction the issues I could see, you know, I'm definitely not a hardware expert. One issue is uh, the on-chip memory tends to be really expensive to manufacture, like much more expensive per gigabyte mm-hmm. compared to off-chip memory. So um, I talked to, the, you know, some of my friends are at uh, Cerebras and, you know, they, they have their own own stack and compiler and, and, and so on and they can make it work. Uh, the other kind of obstacle is, again, with you know, compiler and, and software framework and, and so on. Yeah, you know, for example, if you can run PyTorch on on this stuff, like you know, lots of people will be mm-hmm. will be using it. But you know, supporting all the operations in, in PyTorch will take will take a long time to implement. Of course, you know, people are working on this. So I think, yeah, we kind of need these different bets on the the hardware side as well. Um, hardware has my understanding is has a kind of a longer time scale. So you need to design hardware, you need to manufacture it. You know, maybe on the order of three to five years or something like that. So. People are taking different bets, but the AI landscape is changing so fast that it's hard to predict, okay, what kind of models will be dominant in, let's say, three or five years. Or thinking back five years ago, would we have mm-hmm. known that Transformer would have been the, the dominant architecture? Maybe, maybe not, right? And so different people will make different bets on, on the hardware side. Yeah, does the pace of the industry and the research also influence the PhD research itself. So like, for example, in, in your case, you know, you're working on improving attention. It probably took you quite a while to like write the paper and everything. Yeah. But like in the meantime, you could have had a new model architecture come right. out and then right. it's like nobody cares about attention anymore. Yeah. How do people balance that? Yeah, so I think it's, it's tough. It's definitely tough for PhD students, for researchers, given the field is moving really, really fast. I think it, it you know, comes down to understanding fundamentals. Because that's essentially, for example, what the PhD allows you to do. It's spend a couple of years understanding the fundamentals. So, for example, when I started my, my PhD, I was working on understanding matrix uh, vector multiply, which is, you know, uh, it's a very, it's been a concept that's been around for hundreds of, hundreds of years. We were trying to characterize what kind of matrices would have theoretically fast uh, multiplication algorithm. That seems to have nothing to do with, you know, AI or anything. But I think that was a time when kind of I, did, I developed kind of um, mathematical maturity and research taste and research skill. The research topic at that point didn't have to be like super trendy or anything. 
as long as I'm developing skills as a researcher, I'm, I'm making progress. And eventually, I've gotten uh, you know quite a bit better in terms of like, research skills, right? And that allows, for example, PhD students later in their their career to quickly develop solutions to whatever you know problems they're they're facing. So I think that's just the na- natural arc of how you're being trained as a, as a researcher. For a lot of PhD students, I think given the pace is, is so fast, maybe it's harder to justify spending a lot of time on the fundamental. And, and you know, it's, it's tough. Like, what is it's kind of explore, exploit kind of kind of uh, dilemma? And I don't think there's a universal answer. So I personally spend some time doing this kind of exploration, you know, reading random textbooks or, or lecture notes, and I spend some time just like keeping up with the latest architecture or methods and, and, and so on. I don't know if there's a right balance. It depends on, it varies from person to, to person. But if you only spend 100% on one, um, you know, either you only do exploration or only do exploitation, I think it probably won't work in the long term. It's probably going to have to be a, a mix and you have to just experiment and kind of uh, be introspective and say, hey, I, I try this kind of mixture of, I don't know, one exploration paper and one exploitation paper. Like, how did that work out for me? Should I, you know, having conversation with, with, for example, my advisor about like, hey, did that work out? You know, should I shift? I focus more on on one or the other. Like, I think quickly adjusting and focusing on the process. I think that's probably the right way. I don't have like a specific recommendation that hey, you focus. I don't know, sixty percent on on lecture notes and forty percent on archive papers or anything like yeah. that. <laughs> Let's talk about some transformer alternatives. You know, say Jonathan Franco loses his bet and yeah. uh, transformer is not the state of the art architecture. What are mm-hmm. some of the candidates to take over? Yeah, so this bet is is quite fun. So this, I, I, my understanding is this bet between um, Jonathan Franco and uh, Sasha Rush, mm-hmm. right? I've talked to through Sasha a bunch, and I think he recently gave an excellent tutorial on kind of transformer alternatives as well. So I would recommend that. So just to quickly recap, I think there's been quite a bit of, uh, of uh, development more recently about transformer alternatives. So architectures that are not transformer, right? Um, and the question is, can they do well on, for example, language modeling, which is kind of the, the application that a lot of people care about these days. So there are methods based on kind of state-based methods like... Um, that came out in 2021 from from Albert Gu and Curran and and, and and Chris Ray that are presumably could do much better in terms of capturing long range information while not scaling quadratically they they scale you know, subquadratically in terms of sequence length so potentially you could have a much more efficient architecture when sequence length gets uh, really long mm-hmm. the other ones has been focusing more on um, recurrent neural nets which is you know, again an old idea but you know, adapting to the the kind of the new landscape, so things like RWKV. We've also, per, uh, yeah, I've also personally worked in this space as as well. So there's been some promising results. So there's been some results here and there that show that hey, we um, these alternatives, either RNN or state space methods, can match the um, you know, the performance of transformer on language modeling. So that's really exciting, and we're starting to understand on the academic research side, we, we understand, like, do we really need attention? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's, I think that's a valuable kind of intellectual thing to understand. And maybe we do, maybe we don't. If we want to know, we need to spend serious effort on trying the alternatives. And there's been folks pushing on this direction. I think RWKV scale up to, they have a model at 14 billion that seems pretty competitive with Transformers. So that's really exciting. 
you know, that's kind of an intellectual thing. We want to figure out if attention is necessary. So that's one motivation. The other motivation is transform alternative could have an advantage in practice in some of the use cases. So one use case is really long sequences. The other is um, really high throughput of generation. So for really long sequences, when you train with transformer, you know, with flash attention and so on, the computation is still quadratic in the sequence length. So if your sequence length is on the order of, I don't know, 16K, 32K, 100K or something, which some of these models have sequence length 100K, then you do get significantly slower in terms of training, also in terms of inference. So maybe these alternative architectures could scale better in terms of sequence length. I haven't seen actual validation on this. It's in like, let's say, an RN model release with context length, I don't know, 100K or something. I haven't really seen that. But the hope could be that as we scale to long sequences, these alternative architecture could be more well-suited. Not just text, but things like high-resolution images, audio, video, and, and so on, which are you know, emerging applications. So that's one, uh, long sequences. Number two is uh, high-throughput generation, where I can imagine scenarios where the application isn't like a, an interactive chatbot, but let's say a company wants to batch as many requests as, as, as possible on their, on their server, or like they're doing offline processing, they're you know, generating stuff based on their internal documents that you need to process in, in batch, right? And the issue with transform is that to, during generation, essentially needs to keep around all the previous history. It's the, called the KV cache. And that could take a significant amount of memory. So you can't really batch too much because you, you run out of memory. For other... I, I am personally bullish on RNNs. I think RNNs, um, they, don't, they essentially summarize the past into a, a state vector. They have fixed size, so the size doesn't grow with the history. So that means that you don't need as much memory to keep around all the previous um, tokens. And as a result, I think you can scale to much higher batch sizes. And as a result, you can much, make much more efficient use of the, of the GPUs or the, the accelerator, and you could have much higher um, generation throughput. Now, this has... I don't think has been validated um, at scale. So as a researcher, you know, I'm bullish on, on this stuff because I think in the next couple of years, like these, these are use cases where these alternatives could have an advantage. We'll just kind of uh, have to, to, to wait and see to, to see if these, you know, these, uh, these things will happen. I am personally bullish on this stuff. At the same time, I also like, spend a bunch of time making attention mm-hmm. as, as fast as possible. <laughs> so maybe hatching and playing both sides. You know. Ultimately, we want to understand as researcher, we want to understand what works. Why do the model, why do the models um, have these capabilities? And, and one way is let's push attention to be as efficient as possible. On the other hand, let's push other alternatives to be as efficient as as uh, we can scale as big as possible, and so that we can kind of compare them mm-hmm. and understand. Yeah, awesome. And I think as long as all of this work happens in the open, it's you know a net positive for everybody to explore all the all the paths. Uh, yeah, let's talk about open source AI. Obviously, together, you know, when Red Pajama came out, which was a an open clone of like the Llama One mm-hmm, yeah. um, pre-training data set, it was a, a big thing in the industry. Llama Two came out on Tuesday. I forget. And this week, there's been a lot of things going on, which, you know, they call open source, but it's not really open source. Actually, we wrote a post about it that was on the front page of Accurate News before this podcast. Okay. So I was frantically okay. responding. Uh-huh. How do you think about what open source AI really is, you know, like in my mind, there's in open source software, we have different levels of open. So there's like 
free software. That's like the GPL license. There's open source, which is a Apache, MIT. And then there's kind of like restricted open source, which is the SSPL and some of these other licenses. In AI, you have the open models. So Red Pajama is an open model because you have the pre-training data set, you have the training runs and everything. And then there's obviously random lens that doesn't make it one-to-one if you retrain it. Then you have the open weights model that's kind of like stable LM where the weights are open, but the data set is not open. Right. And then you have um, Llama 2, which is the data set is not open, the weights are restricted. It's kind of like not really open source, you know, but open enough. I think it's net positive because it's like, $3 million of flops, mm-hmm. like donated yes. to the public, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. How do you think about that? And also like, as you work with Together, you know, what is uh, your philosophy with open source AI? Right, right. Yeah, that, I think that that's that's a great question. And I think about it on maybe more practical terms. So of course, Meta has done an amazing job training Llama 1, Llama 2. And for Llama 2, they um, kind of make it much less restrictive compar- compared to Llama 1s, where now... You can use it for businesses unless you are however, you know, 700 million a monthly active, active user or something like that. I think just this change will have a very significant impact in the kind of landscape of, of open source AI, where now lots of businesses, lots of companies will be using, I expect will be using things like Glamour 2. They will fine tune on their own data set. They will be serving variants or derivatives of, of Llama 2. Um, whereas before, you know, with Llama 1, it's a, also, also a really good model, but your business uh, companies weren't allowed to do that. So I think on more practical term, it's kind of shifting the balance between kind of closed source model like OpenAI and, and, and Anthropic and Google where you're making API calls, right? And you, maybe you don't understand as much of what the model is doing, how the model is changing and, and, and so on. Versus now... We have a model with open weight that is, uh, you know, pretty competitive from what I've seen in terms of benchmarks, pretty competitive with GPT 3.5, right? And if you fine tune it on your own data, maybe it's like more well suited for your own data. And I, I do see that's going to shift the balance of it. More and more folks are going to be using, let's say, derivatives of Llama 2. More and more folks are going to fine tune and serve their own model instead of calling an API. So that shifting of balance is important because in one way we don't want a just a concentration of decision making power in the hands of you know, a few a few companies. So I think that's a really positive development from from Meta. Of course, training the model takes a couple millions of dollars, but like you know, engineers have and they've they've I'm sure they you know they spend tons of time trying to trying many, many different things. So the actual cost is probably way more than that. And they make the weights available and and um, they allow probably a lot of companies are gonna be using this. So I think that's a really positive development. And we've also seen amazing progress on the you know, open source community where they would take these models and they either fine tune on different kinds of data sets or even make changes to the, to the model. So as an example, I think for Llama 1, the context lane was limited to 2K. Like a bunch of folks figured out some really simple methods to scale up to like 8K. Yeah, like the rope. Yes. I think the open source community is like very creative, right? And you know, lots of people. Lama 2 will, again, kind of accelerate this, where more people will try it out, more people will make tweaks to it and make a contribution and then so on. So overall, I think I see that as still a, a very positive development for, for the field. And there's been lots of libraries that will allow you to host or fine-tune these, these models, like even with quantization mm-hmm. and, and so on. So yeah, just a couple hours after Lama 2 was released, like tons of companies announcing that, hey, it's on our API yeah. or hosting and then so on, and, and together did, did the same. 
So it's a very fast-paced development and just kind of a model with, with available weights that businesses are allowed to use. I think that alone is already very um, positive development. But at the same time, yeah, we, we can do much better in terms of releasing data set. I think data set tend to be somehow people are not incentivized to release right. data set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, philosophically, yeah, you want to be as open as possible. But on practical term, I think it's a little bit harder for companies to release data set, you know, legal issues. The data set released tend to be not as uh, eye catchy mm -hmm. as yep. the model release. So maybe people are less incentivized to do that. We've seen some, you know, uh, quite a few companies releasing this, you know, together, released uh, Red Pajama, Dataset, I think Cerebus, then worked on that and, you know, deduplicate and clean it up and release Slim Pajama and, and, and so on. So we're also seeing positive development on that front, kind of on the pre-training data set. So I, I do expect that to continue. And then on the fine-tuning data set or instruction tuning data set, I think we now have quite a few open data sets on, on instruction tuning and, and fine-tuning. But yeah, these companies still, they do pay uh, for human labelers to annotate these uh, instruction tuning data set. And that is expensive. Right. And maybe you know, they will see that as their competitive advantage. And so it's harder to incentivize these companies to, to release these data set. So I think on practical terms, we're still going to make pro a lot of progress in, on open source AI on both the model development, on both model hosting, on pre-training data set and, and fine-tuning data set. You know, right now, maybe we don't have kind of the perfect open source model mm -hmm. since, oh, all the data sets are available. Maybe we don't have such a thing yet, but we've seen very fast development on the, on the open source side, right? I, mean, I think just maybe this time last year, there weren't as right. many yeah, models yeah. as they are competitive with, let's say, you know, ChatGPT. Yeah, I think the open data sets have so much more impact, you know, the open models. If you think about Eluther mm -hmm. and like the work that they've done GPTJ was like great, and like the Pythia models are great, but like the pile and like the stack, absolutely, are like, you yes. know, everybody uses them, mm -hmm. you know. So hopefully, we get more more people to contribute time to work on data sets, you know, instead of doing the one hundredth open model that like performs worse than all the other one, but they want to say they release the model. Yeah, maybe like the the, the question is how, how do we figure out a kind of incentive structure. So that companies are willing to uh, release uh, open, uh, data sets, and and for example, it could be like I think some of the organizations are now doing this, where they are kind of asking volunteers to like you know, annotate and, and and so on, and and kind of maybe the Wikipedia model of data set, or especially for instruction tuning, could be could be interesting, where people actually volunteer their time, and instead of editing Wikipedia, mm -hmm. like you know, add annotation, and somehow they're they're acknowledged and 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 feel incentivized to do so. Hopefully, we get to that. That kind of level of, in terms of data, would be like kind of like uh, Wikipedia, mm -hmm. and in terms of model development, it's kind of like Linux, where people are contributing patches and and improving the model in some way. I don't know exactly how that's going to happen, but based on history, I think there is a way to get there. Yeah, I think the Dolly 15k dataset is like a good example yes. of a company yeah. saying, "Hey, let's do this smaller thing. Just make sure we make it open." And it came out very. We have Mike Conover from Databricks on the podcast, and he was like. People just bought into it and like leadership was bought into it. You know, you have companies out there with like, you know, two, three hundred thousand employees. It's like just put some of them to label some data, you know, like it's gonna be helpful. So curious to see how that evolves. What made you decide to join together? For together, the focus has been focusing a lot on open source model. And then I think that aligns quite well with what I, I care about. Of course, 
I also know a bunch of people there that, and I, that I know and trust, and I'm excited to work with them. Philosophically, the way they've been really open with like data set and, and model release, I like that a lot. Personally, I've, you know, uh, for, for the stuff, for example, the research that I've developed, like we, try, we also try to make you know, code available, free to use and modify and, and, and so on, con- contributing to the uh, community. You know, that has given us really valuable feedback from the community in improving our, our, our work. So philosophically, I like the way uh, you t- together has been focusing on open source model. And the nice thing is we're also going to be kind of at the forefront of research and the, uh, the kind of research areas that I'm really excited about, things like efficient training and mm-hmm. inference aligns quite well with uh, what the company is, is doing. We'll, we'll try our best to make things open and available to, to everyone. Yeah, but it's going to be fun being at, at the, the company doing, you know, leading a team doing research on the topic that I really care about. And hopefully we'll, we'll make things open to, to benefit kind of community. Awesome. Let's jump into the lightning round. Okay. We usually have three questions. So one is on acceleration, one on exploration, and then a takeaway. So the first one is, what's something that already happened in AI machine learning that you thought would take much longer than it has? I think understanding jokes. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I didn't expect uh, that to happen, but uh, you know, it turns out scaling model up and training lots of data. The model's going to understand jokes. Maybe it's a, it's a small, small thing, but like, that was amazing to me. What about uh, the exploration side? What are some of the most interesting unsolved questions in the space? I would say reasoning in a broad term. We don't really know how these models are doing. Essentially, you know, they do something that looks like reasoning. We don't know how they're doing it. We have some ideas. And in the future, I think we will need to design architecture that kind of explicitly have some kind of reasoning module in it if we want to have much more capable models. Mm-hmm. What's one message you want everyone to remember today? I would say try to understand both the algorithm and the systems that these algorithms run on. I think the, at the intersection of machine learning system has been really exciting and there's been a lot of amazing results at this intersection. And then when you, you know, scale models to, to large scale, both the machine learning side and the system side really matter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Tree. This yeah. was great. Yeah, this has been really fun.